hopefully you had a good New Year's Eve. Ours was quiet and uh, enjoyably so. <laughs> you liking the cold weather? It's been so cold recently. Boy, it's been nice. But uh, as we prepare our hearts for our communion time uh, today, we're going to do it a little later on in the service. Uh, next week, we'll actually be sharing a missions update from our missions trip and uh, sharing that with you uh, next week. So we look forward to that. But this morning, I want to uh, speak to us about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want to just read for us verse 10. We've been going through 1 Corinthians, and we'll continue to go through 1 Corinthians, and this is our 13th message in this book, this letter of Paul to the, the church at Corinth. And I just want to read for us, and then we'll do a little introduction and talk about uh, verse 10 this morning. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Um, this section continues all the way down to verse 17. We're going to focus on verse 10, but I want to read all, seven, or all uh, seven verses for us. So verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrelings among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did not baptize, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. As we look at that, it speaks of the church. It speaks of unity within the church and the lack of unity they had in the church at Corinth. Uh, I thank God that we're teaching through this book and that we get to teach on this subject, not because we have to, because we have divisions and schisms in our own church. I don't see that. I don't find that to be true. But on a, on a greater scale, it's something that we have to guard against. And so we don't preach on this out of necessity, but we preach on it because it's in the Word of God, and we preach on it because it is something we all deal with. I'm sure if we went around the room and uh, we asked, have you ever been through a church problem or a church issue or a church split, God forbid, uh, most of us would probably say, yeah, I'm kind of familiar with that. It's usually not pretty. It's uh, not honoring to God at all when those things happen to the body of Christ, to the church that represents the body of Christ. And so as we begin this little series here on verses 10 through 17, I kind of like to call this series Messy Church <laughs> because sometimes church can be messy. Would you agree? Church can be difficult. Um, Loving others isn't always as easy as it looks or as we anticipate it to be or we want it to be because we're all made up as individuals, and that's a good thing. 
you know, you, you don't have to become a clone to become part of the body of Christ. That's not what becoming a Christian is about. Becoming a Christian is becoming like Christ. Um, and so when we look at this, this passage, it's going to be a very practical time that we spend, especially as we prepare our hearts for communion even today. Um, because it's, it's not just about how we can relate to one another and all those things, but it's about the unity that God has provided for us in Christ. And I think that a lot of us uh, sometimes fail to forget that's what God has already provided. We don't have to work at being unified. We already are unified. And so when he begins here in verse 10, he, has said, he says, I appeal to you or I beseech you, some translations say, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions or schisms among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. I trust that you would agree that with the statement, unity is not a natural thing for people. People just aren't naturally unified. Usually it takes a cause to unify people. Um, you know, either you love the president or you hate the president, but whatever it might be, that, if that's your cause, you're unified with people that have that, share that same, that same uh, idea. Or maybe you like the 49ers, you don't like the 49ers, or whoever. You know, you're unified around a common cause. But just to have unity in and of itself, it doesn't come naturally. And, and the reason is, is because we're all individuals. We all have our likes and dislikes. Turn over to the book of James, James chapter 4, because James addresses this in a way that is, is very practical for us to see. James chapter 4. Look at the, the, the first verse here. Verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels or divisions, and what causes fights among you? Now remember, he's writing to who? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? In other words, we all want, want what we want when we want it. You take a little child and you give him a toy and you put him in a room with another child what do you, what do you hear usually you hear the words mine <laughs> and they grab that toy and they're not going to share it why because it's theirs we see sinfulness even in the heart of a little child for goodness sakes those passions are deep within us we're born with that in our hearts we want Want what we want when we want it. Verse 2, he says, You desire and you do not have. In this case, it says, So you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You know, that's the bottom line of, of a lot of the lack of peace we have in our society and our world today when it comes down right down to it whether it has to do with a little child or it has to do with two countries warring over a piece of land. Why? They want it. And that's what it leads to. It leads to fights. It leads to quarrels. Verse 3 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Verse 3 says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask, what? Wrongly. 
with wrong motives, with wrong desires. Why? Because you're asking for it so you can spend it on your own passions. You're asking for stuff that you want. You're asking for things that you desire, not what God desires. I mean, basically, it boils down to our selfishness. It boils down to our egos. It boils down to just naturally who we are as individuals. We want our way or the highway when it comes right down to it. And when we come into the body of Christ, we have to lay that aside. Even when you come to Christ, you have to lay it aside. He says what? If you're going to follow me, if you're going to commit your life to me, then you need to take up your cross. The cross was what? An instrument of death. It wasn't the gold thing you hang around your neck or silver thing. It was an instrument of death. In other words, you're going to be willing to die to yourself, die to your own passions, die to your own desires, and willingly come to a Lord and Savior who loves you, wants to forgive you, but who requires full commitment. In a lot of churches, they'll teach that you can come to Jesus as your Savior, but not your Lord. You can come to him and be saved, but you don't have to give him control over your life. That's something later you do when you grow in your faith. And Jesus never taught that. If you look throughout the Gospels, he never taught that. He taught just the opposite. In other words, if you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me with all your heart, with all your desire, with everything, or don't follow me at all. As a matter of fact, it was Jesus who, when thousands of people were following him, and his disciples were probably feeling pretty good about that time because of the crowd size, thinking, wow, this is going to be great when we get to Jerusalem. All these people, we can overthrow the Romans, no problem, because they didn't understand why Jesus came. They didn't understand that he came to die on a cross for our sins. They thought they're looking for a military leader, and they're part of his little band of the military. And so, hey, this guy has miraculous powers. When we get to Jerusalem, it's going to be great. We're taking all these people with him. We're just going to overwhelm them. And then you remember when Jesus miraculously fed all those people with a couple loaves of bread and a couple fish, and then he said some very hard things to them. He indicated to them that, you know what? You're just here for a meal. <laughs> All you want is, is the free food. You're not following me because of who I am. You're just following me because of your felt needs being met. And we have a lot of people in the church today that follow Jesus because they think that Jesus is responsible to meet their felt needs. What do I mean by felt needs? Well, a happy family, a happy job, money in the bank, healthy, wealthy, prosperous, whatever you want to call it. That's how a majority of people today follow Christ. Why they follow Christ? Because they're looking to get something from him. They're not looking to give anything. They're looking to have their felt needs met. And so when their felt needs aren't met, what happens? Well, they begin to grumble. They begin to gripe. God, well, why, why, why can't I have this? Why can't I have that? And what happens is a majority of these people get brought into the church because they make a profession of faith. So pretty much they're counted as part of the church of Christ, but maybe they've never even been transformed by his power or his grace. They're just doing you know, the church thing, the coming to church. And that's fine, but that's not going to save you. And so 
because they're not enabled by the Holy Spirit to do what God expects us to do as the body of Christ, these divisions, these schisms, everybody wanting their own way creeps into the church. It happens all the time. Even though we have guards up to try to make sure that doesn't happen. We check ourselves, we check our own motives on a, on a daily basis. It's interesting to me that Paul, in this book, this letter that he writes to this church, in the first nine verses, it's almost kind of like praising. He's thanking God. He's not thanking the Corinthians, by the way. He's thanking God for the work that he's done in the Corinthians, who are legitimately saved. So he's pointing back, and he says, you know what, I give thanks, verse 4, to my God always for you, because of what? Because of how well you're living the Christian life? No, (laughs) no. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He's thanking God for the work that God did in the Corinthians' lives, in their individual lives. And then he says in verse 9 that they were, God is faithful by whom you were called into this fellowship. You were called into this unity. See, unity isn't something that just happens naturally to us. God has to recreate us in order to have this unity within the body of Christ. That's salvation. When we come to Christ, he doesn't say, okay, let me just add Jesus to your life. He doesn't say that. He says, I have to make you a whole new creation. Paul says that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new. Everything. Why? Because there wasn't any good in anything. And that's a very pride-crushing understanding of those verses when you stop and think about it. You mean there's no good in me? No. Other than the fact that you were created in God's image, we are all steeped in sin And the only way out of that is to be recreated by God's transformative power. And so we all have these desires within us, and Paul recognizes that even in the Corinthians, who he's praising God for up to this point, but he says, hey, you know what? I got to tell you something, guys. Something's not right. You got a problem. And this problem found its way into the Corinthian church. These kind of attitudes, this kind of selfishness is forbidden by God. It's, we can quote verse and verse upon verse that says, you know what, we're not to seek our own way, we're to seek the other person and, and their desires more than, than ourselves. All those things are laid out for us in Scripture, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's totally out of character for a church to have divisions and to have schisms and to have people wanting to do their own thing. It's totally out of the character of the church. But that's exactly what happens. And as a result of that, Satan gets involved and he just loves it because it really, you know, when you can tear apart a church, when you can cause division within the church, what are you doing? You're you're dishonoring God, first of all. You're disgracing Christ. And you're also discrediting Christians across the board. And so Paul sees this as as an opportunity from verse 10 of chapter 1 all the way through the end of the book. Emmanuel read for us uh, a, a 
the verse at the end here, and you notice he talks about the same thing. He's talking about some issues. You got some problems going on here. You have some divisions. You need to deal with this. And he doesn't just bring it up here. He brings it up over and over and over and over again. Why? Because it was a real problem. You know, I thank God that I'm sure we have some disharmony, some division within our church, but it's, it's not on the likes of this, praise God, because we're made up of individuals. We're made up of sinners saved by God's grace. So it's, it's, it's very clear that we would have some that disagree with different things. And but here you're talking about major quarrels, major fights. And when he says there in verse 10 that he appeals to them, he, he's, he's really transitioning. He's transitioning from the time of thankfulness. He, up to this point, he's just, boy, praising them. Boy, you're, you're saints. You're doing all this stuff. But you know what? You're not living up to it. And that's what Paul's model for teaching always has been. He'll give you the positional doctrine maybe of where you are in Christ, and then he follows up with it. Because of that, you should be doing this. That's what he does. Good book to see that very clearly, and it's the book of Ephesians. If you read the first three chapters of Ephesians, what's it talk about? It just talks about who you are in Christ. Chosen before the foundation of the world, all these, all these things. And then chapter 4, he says, now because of that, <laughs> because of who you are in Christ, you need to start living this way. This should affect your own personal spirituality. This should affect your family. This should affect your marriage. This should affect your worth ethic. It should affect everything because of who you are in Christ. I mean, when you, you stop and you think about the, the book of 1 Corinthians, from chapter 1, verse 10 on, what's he talking about? He's just talking about their issues. He's talking about their problems. He's talking about errors within their church. Verse 10 of chapter 1 through chapter 421, he's talking about divisions, why you have them, and why it's not right to have them. And then beginning in chapter 5, all the way up to chapter 6, verse 20, he talks about issues in their church regarding immorality, if you can believe it or not. And then from chapter 7, verse 1 to the end, he talks about errors and misunderstandings regarding marriage. And then he continues in chapter 8 all the way to chapter 11, and he says, you know what, there's some of you who think that just because you're a Christian, you have a certain Christian liberty, you can go out and do whatever you want. That's not right. And he addresses that erroneous thought. And then from chapter 11 to, uh, to the... To, to basically the end of the chapter, he talks about, and we're going to look at that this morning a little bit, the Lord's table. What was going on in this church around the Lord's table? And then verses 12, or chapters 12 to 14, he talks about errors and issues they had with their spiritual gifts. You know, a lot of people from the charismatic movement use Corinthians as a as a, as a model for, for the use of gifts. It's anything but that. I mean, it was a disaster what was going on in this church. It wasn't of God. 
And then in verse 15, he talks about errors that they had in misunderstanding the resurrection. And then in verse 16, he talks about errors regarding their own personal financial matters. And so from here on, he's just going to talk about issues. <laughs> and that's why it's so practical, because we all have issues. Amen? Or is it just me? Maybe we all. I think we all got issues. We all got some issues. And see, sooner or later, your issue is going to be addressed as we go through this book. And that's a good thing. So whether it's immorality, marriage, Christian liberty, the Lord's table, spiritual gifts, any of this stuff, resurrection, money. But notice what he starts off with. The one thing they had an issue with, the one thing that he didn't start off with finances. He didn't talk about that. That's not till the end. Praise God. He started here in verse 10 talking about unity and how critical and how important that was to the church of Christ. Because if you stop and think about it, for a church to be unified, that really adds credibility. It adds credibility to our testimony. It adds joy to the ministry as we minister alongside one another and together. I mean, if you've ever been in a church that's not unified, I mean, I've heard of, of churches where one of the major things that, that brings disunity to a church is the music. So some genius thought up a couple, many years ago, actually, that, you know what, to, to avoid any disunity in the music, we'll just have different services based on the style of music. So we'll have a, you know, a traditional service. And, and I mean, this seems so silly to me, but this is what people actually do. I've talked to pastors, and, and I said, well, how does this work? And they, and they said, well, the traditional service, you know, I'll, I'll wear a suit and a tie usually, and I'll come to church, and, and then, you know, we'll sing just hymns, and usually it's just the piano or the organ. Sometimes they'll have a choir, a big choir. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds okay. But we just sing hymns. We don't sing anything else but hymns. It's like, okay. And I said, well, what happens after? Well, then we have a, a more contemporary service. Okay, okay, what happens there? Well, you know, I, I actually, I, I go to my office and I change. I go, you change? <laughs> like your clothes? Goes, yeah, yeah, I'll change. I'll put on some jeans, you know, and maybe a T-shirt and some sneakers. <laughs> what? Are you serious? And he's like, yeah, yeah, because it's a whole different crowd. I'm like, okay. And he goes, and then we have, you know, kind of we have a band, kind of a concert kind of setting, you know, with fog coming out on the stage and lights going off and just, and he goes, that's what they like. And he goes, you know, I don't really preach. I just maybe give a 10, 15 minute little, you know, devotion thing. And I'm thinking, wow, okay. So you have like totally intentionally divided the body of Christ because of music. See, that, that should not be. I mean, I get it. We all have different styles. We all have different tastes. But the church isn't a place to air your preferences concerning those things. It's really irrelevant. As long as the words line up with Scripture, and there's a spirit of, of worship, who cares whether it's country western music? Or whether it's little guitar rocky or, or more traditional organ. Who cares? 
I mean, you know, they didn't have such standards in the, in the, in the New Testament or even the Old Testament. You know, they were able to worship God freely. Not looking if, you know, I remember hearing when they first brought drums into this church. And some of you remember that and how that was, oh my goodness. And there were, there were some individuals, literally, if, if the praise team was up here that Sunday, you know, if they had, a, they had the drums and the pianist and maybe a guitarist and a couple singers, if the choir wasn't present, there were people, the rows would get up and walk out of this church. It's like, what in the world is going on? See, and see that's, that's, that's what this is addressing. That's what Paul is addressing. It's schisms based on preferences. It's schisms based on doctrine. And I think that's mainly what he's addressing here is doctrinal issues, doctrinal divisions within the body of Christ. When you read in the, God, in, in the book of Acts, for, for instance, in chapter 2, you see these, these, these people who had a singleness of mind. They were of one mind, it says. They met together daily, not just once a week, daily. And they shared a, a common bond, a common love that they had for each other. And the Bible says that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Why? Because there was a harmony there. There was a unity there. And so we have to be careful when we, you know, come into our churches. Are we coming because of this or of that? Or are we just coming because, you know what, we want to grow in our relationship with the Lord? And so he begins this epistle talking about unity, how important that is. And he doesn't want us to get sidetracked. He's not, he's not talking here about some kind of a, a unity that's this mystical, ooh, we're all one in Christ kind of a thing. No, he has specifically, I believe, doctrinal unity in mind. Because if you don't have doctrinal unity, you don't have unity. Would you agree? If you can't agree on what the Bible teaches, you, you, you got some issues. Now, I'm not talking about those verses that, hey, it's questionable, you know, what does it really say? No. But on, on the basic doctrines, the tenets of our faith, if you don't have doctrinal unity, you have an issue. And so when Paul says here that he appeals, that word, it's interesting, it comes from the same word as the, the Holy Spirit, the comforter the paraclete, the one who comes alongside us. This is what Paul is doing. He, he basically thanked God for everything concerning the, his work in the Corinthians. He's not thanking the Corinthians because they didn't do anything here, but he's thanking God. And then in verse 10, he says, based on what God has done in your lives, I appeal to you. In other words, I'm coming alongside of you. Why? Because he counts them, it says there, as his what? His brothers. In other words, they were the same people who were called into the same fellowship that Paul was called into. When he started off, he says, Paul, called by the will of God. In other words, this wasn't my deal, it was God's deal. And it's the same thing, when you come to Christ, it's not your deal, it's God's deal. You're saved not because just you want to be saved, you're saved because God wants you to be saved. 
that God sets his love upon you divinely and that he transforms your heart, that he gives you a new mind. He gives you transformation as only salvation can. And for the first time, you begin to think differently about God, about his word, about the church, about everything. And so he appeals to them, and he says, you know what? In, in, even in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that word appeal is used as the word advocate, that we have an advocate. This, this is the basic meaning, means to come alongside one, some, some, someone in order to help them. And so Paul isn't here lowering the boom, a big hammer, you know, on the Corinthians because they're so messed up. He's coming alongside of them, and he wants them to understand that, you know what, more than anything, I, I'm here to help you. I want to come alongside you as a brother, as a sister in Christ. That's what the church is called to do. And he's coming alongside of them, not to just pat them on the back and say, wow, you're just such a wonderful Christian. No, he's coming alongside of them to say, you know what? you got some real issues, pal. you got some sins that you need to address. See, the, the whole coming alongside of the comfort of com- having someone come alongside of you, we think of someone coming along and you know, maybe picking us out of a ditch or, or helping us change a tire. Oh, we welcome that. But when a brother or sister comes alongside of us, taps us on the shoulder and says, you know what, I need to talk to you about something. You know, your attitude really stinks. Well, who are you to think? You know, you know, we, we, we don't like that kind of a, a, of a dress. We don't want that kind of comfort. We don't want somebody appealing to us in that way, but that's what Paul is doing here. Why? Because he loves them, because he counts them as his brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants to help them to see and correct their sins, their shortcomings, and that's what the body of Christ is for. You know, if we're not willing to correct and to help us help each other with our shortcomings, who's going to help us? We need to be transparent. We need to be honest with each other. Even in the book of Philemon in verse 9, you know, Philemon, basically he wrote Philemon there to forgive the slave Onesimus, and he wanted him sent back to Paul. And the apostle says in verse 9, he says, Yet for love's sake I appeal to you. He uses the same word that he's using here. I come alongside of you. I'm trying to encourage you to do the right thing. And that's what he's doing here to the Corinthians. But notice, he doesn't appeal to them as a bunch of sinners. What does he appeal to them as? What does he say? I appeal to you, brothers. Brothers. Why does he do that? Because in verse 9... He just got done saying, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, if you're in the fellowship of Christ, you are a brother or sister to whoever else is in the fellowship of Christ. We don't get to choose who's our brother or our sister. (laughs) That's God's doing. It says that he called us into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ. And so he wants us to understand, first of all, that even though they were messed up, that he still counted them as brothers or sisters in Christ. He wasn't willing to just toss them aside because they had some issues. 
I mean, I think if our churches had a lot more transparency in people's lives, it would be a lot healthier church across the board. But when we come to church, we put our guard up. We don't want people to see what's really going on inside our lives because that would be humiliating. (laughs) But that's what we're called to do. We're called to be real. We're called to be transparent. So he says, I appeal to you, brothers... And then he says this, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he, inv- he invokes Christ's authority in this. In other words, he's saying, hey, I'm not just here as your friend. I'm not here just as your pal to pat you on the head. I'm here by the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. I'm, ba- I'm here basically to help correct issues that you're going through based on Christ's character, based on Christ's will. And I think that we need to be reminded that the name of Christ represents just that. It's not just invoking the name of Jesus. You know, you hear people pray all the time, you know, well, you know, thank you, and, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You hear that all the time. And when someone doesn't pray that way, then when they don't pray in Jesus' name, we think, ooh, you have something wrong. No. You know, it's not a formula to close your prayer with. You know, it's, it's, it's basically saying that, you know what, you're praying with the expectation that what you're praying conforms with his character, with his will. You're praying in his name. It would be like saying, you know what, you went out to eat at a dinner, at a, at a restaurant, And you say, you know what, I'm going to order on behalf of Steve. I'm going to order based on what I know Steve likes. So I'm going to order a steak and a potato because I know he likes that. He's not just going to want a salad. He wants some meat. See, if if you said, hey, I ordered something for you and and there was a bowl of, uh, you know, ramen sitting there or a a bowl of uh, tofu or something, I would say, I'm sorry, you don't know me very well. You may have ordered in my name, but you really did not. See, that's what it means when we speak of the name of Christ. It's not just a phrase we tag on at the end of our prayers. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, it basically says that we should pray in accordance with his word, with his will. Jesus said to pray, saying, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy will be done. That's how we are to pray. It's not just me, my, I. It's thy will. What does God want for us? And so when we figure out, okay, well, we need to be praying about God's will. We need to be praying about God's character. How do we know what that is? Well, what's interesting is that God has given us his will right here in his word. In Christ's word. It perfectly reflects his character. It perfectly reflects his will. It forms basically the handbook for our behavior as Christians. That's what the Bible does. What we think, what we say, what we do is right or wrong, not because of the effect it has on us or the effect it has on somebody else. If you, if you live your life that way, you're going to be really messed up, but does it or does it not conform to the word of Christ? Does it or does it not conform and bring honor and glory to God? That's how we should live our lives. 
If you just lived your life based upon whether it's helping somebody, I mean, you could do a lot of things that help people that probably wouldn't be honoring to Christ. You could be out feeding homeless people this morning and saying, I'm skipping church. I'm just going to, matter of fact, I know somebody that said that. They, we're not going to church anymore on Sundays. We're going to go feed the homeless. And, and I'm like, okay. I mean, that's very honorable to do that. But I think you're forsaking Scripture when it says, you know what, you shouldn't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, that you should come together. You need to come together as the body of Christ. So for you to choose to do this on a Sunday morning when you should be in church, that's an issue, even though it's a good thing you're doing. So we need to be careful. Our behavior as believers has its most direct relationship to Christ. And so when we sin and when we complain and when we quarrel, what Paul is saying is you're harming the church. You're harming what God has set aside as the church. You're harming the leaders of the church. You're harming even fellow believers. With having such a selfish, self-focused attitude. And you also put a barrier between unbelievers and the gospel. You know, if you don't think that your unbelieving friends are watching you in your life, and they're hearing what you say, and they're hearing you talk about the church, and you're hearing you talk about other Christians, and they're listening to that, you you better be very careful. It's very important that we don't put a barrier there between them and the gospel. But most of all, it it brings dishonor to the Lord. It, It brings discredit to Christ. When the Ephesian elders came to Miletus to meet Paul on his way to Jerusalem, he, he said this to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to leaders within the church, and he's saying, you know what, you better be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. And then he says this, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I mean, stop and think about that. You know, sometimes, you know, when you're in ministry, you can get frustrated. You get frustrated with, you know, things that don't go your way. You get frustrated with, "Eh, maybe the church isn't growing the way it should, whatever. You get frustrated with a lot of different things. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's, you can very easily become disgruntled with even the very people that God has placed under your care. <laughs> and you just kind of, you know. I mean, I, I said this once or twice until somebody finally corrected me. I used to say, you know, ministry would be, ministry would be wonderful if it wasn't for the people. <laughs> and I really felt that way. <laughs> I mean, if, if I could just do ministry without people, boy, that'd be a godsend. Just partially because of my personality. It's like, you know, I don't like big crowds. I don't like... But that's so wrong. It's so wrong. You wouldn't have any ministry if there wasn't any people. You wouldn't be a shepherd if there wasn't any sheep. I mean, you know, come on, Dumbo, figure this out. You know, that, that's kind of what God had to tell me. And then he kind of had to say, hey, you know what? You're one of the sheep too. You got the same issues everybody else has. And so we need to be reminded that the church is something that is very precious to Christ. He gave his own blood to purchase us. That's why we celebrate communion. 
He was basically telling them, don't lose sight of who you are. Don't lose sight of whose you are. Don't lose sight of what the church is. We all belong to Christ. We're all very precious to him. He gave his very blood to save us. And to be a partaker of ministry of any kind, doesn't matter what ministry you're involved in. If you're ministering to brothers and sisters in Christ, that's a very precious ministry. And so he's writing here to this local church. He's talking about the unity of the assembly of believers. And he says, well, verse 10, he goes on, he says, I'll tell you what I mean by this. Because up to this point, they're probably saying, well, okay, what do you mean, Paul? I mean, okay, you're appealing to us, you're appealing to us as brothers, you're appealing to us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you want from us, Paul? And he states it right there, that all of you agree. <laughs> that all of you agree. I mean, can you imagine what kind of standard that that sets for the local church? That we all agree. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, what flavor ice cream do you like? I don't think we can agree on that. We can agree on a myriad of things, let alone doctrines and all kinds of things that are a lot deeper than anything like that. that it almost seems impossible for us to agree. Yet the Lord Himself, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, remember what He told His followers. He said, you know what? Here's, what you, here's the standard. You have to be perfect. <laughs> you have to be perfect. That's what he said in verse 48 in Matthew 5. Read it for yourself. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, you know what? If that's the standard, I'm just going to give up now because there's no way I'm ever going to be perfect. Just ask my wife. I mean, what could be more humanly impossible than trying to be perfect? It's kind of like saying, well, you should all agree. <laughs> You're all supposed to agree. See, God does not give us a standard. God does not set something before us based upon our ability, our human ability, to keep it. He doesn't do that. That's not what God does. He gives it to us. He gives us those standards Things like be ye perfect and you all have to agree based upon his divine provision to us to fulfill that standard. It doesn't come from us, it comes from him. And he doesn't accommodate our human limitations, much less our desires and inclinations. He doesn't say, well, you know, I know you don't want to do this, so I guess I'll just lower the standard for you. No, this is a standard applied to the whole church, across the board, that we all agree. Literally, this word means that you all speak the same thing. That you all speak the same thing. He's speaking about the things of God. He's speaking mainly about doctrine. He's speaking about what we believe to be true within the confines of Scripture. I, I think there's nothing more frustrating for a new Christian or even an unbeliever 
to be part of a conversation where two Christians are arguing over some doctrinal thing. Because I, I, I remember when I first came to Christ, I thought, you know, okay, I'm saved. God's given me the spirit of Christ. I want to read the word. I want to understand it. And I just thought, well, that's, that's going to be easy. This, it's, not a, it's not going to be a, a difficult thing because, you know, God has equipped me to do this. He's given me the, the new, 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 new creation in Christ. All things are new. I'm going to look at the word of God, and, boy, it's just all going to be just perfectly makes sense to me. And then when I run across something, I go and ask somebody, well, you know, I don't understand what this verse means. What does it mean? And that person would tell me. And then I'd ask somebody else, and they'd tell me something else. I'd be like, wait a minute. How can this be? <laughs> They're both Christians. They both have two different opinions on this matter. What's the truth? What's the truth? And I kind of became a little disillusioned for a little while because it was confusing to me. When you hear about conflicting things or you, you, you find something in Scripture, and I remember when I was reading through Genesis and read through the first account of creation there, and then I just kept reading. I'm like, wait, didn't I just read this? Wait a minute. Now I'm finding discrepancies. What is this? Two accounts of creation. What is this? And I started making up my own theology, thinking, wow, this is, I've never heard of this before. And somebody had to explain to me what that, how that reads and what, what that means. And it's a retelling of the original creation and everything. You know, it was really weird. But see, if you don't have that, you can become divided on everything. And see, when you have a church where everybody's got their own ideas, their own interpretation, have you ever shared a truth with someone and they say, well, you know what, that's your interpretation. They say that all the time. It's like, well, no, it's not. There's only one interpretation of Scripture. There's many applications, but there's only one interpretation. What was the original intent of the author when he wrote this? That's our desire. That's what we want to know. Everything else is application after that. But if you can understand what the original intent of the author was when he wrote it under the influence of the Holy Spirit, then you understand what the text means. And then you can apply it in maybe a myriad of different ways. But for a local church to be spiritually healthy, to be harmonious, to be effective, there has to be unity on the things of God. There has to be unity on doctrinal issues. It can't be a smorgasbord. I remember when I first came to Grace, very first year, people would call the office once in a while and say, hey, you know, yeah, I'm thinking of coming to your church. Can I, can I ask you a couple questions? And I knew what the church believed. I knew what I believed. But, you know, as a young pastor, I wanted the church to grow. So I would get peppered with questions. A lot of times they were questions concerning um, spiritual gifts. And they would ask me a question. They would say, well, are you a spirit-filled church? I'd say, well, sure. <laughs> well, uh, you answered that kind of quickly. What I mean is, and I knew what they meant, but I was just trying to win them over. <laughs> and eventually they'd come down, well, let me ask you this, Pastor. Do you speak in tongues? And I remember a couple times going, this is going to be a deal breaker. <laughs> this is going to be a thing coming to our church if I answer the wrong way. And I would have to be honest with them and say, no, I don't speak in tongues, and we don't believe that's for today. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Well, I'm looking for a spirit-filled church. Click. 
Okay. That's frustrating. Because you almost want to bow and say, well, you know, yeah, okay, well, what do you mean by that? And try to, you know, kind of work, work your way around that. But see, what does that add? If you, if you offer a smorgasbord of doctrine to people, what does it offer? It offers confusion. You know, you, we, we're not a church where you can come and say, okay, well, you know, let me see what you believe, and I like this, and I like that. No, no, that's not going to work. Yeah, we don't want the buffet Christian. We want somebody that's come and says, you know what, I'm interested in what this book says. If you can tell me what this book says, then let's agree on that. A lot of times there's churches that are united around social issues. You see that more than ever now. Just drive around Redwood City, you see banners, you know, we welcome all. (laughs) Yeah, what do they mean by that? I mean, we welcome everybody. But what do we mean by that? See, uh, there's, there's those kind of issues, social issues, that, that, that want to reach out and just welcome everybody. There's also, you know, today churches are, are united a lot of times around their, even their culture. There's Indian churches, there's black churches, there's white churches, there's, you know, all that. That's not of God. And, and it's, I think it's just as wrong to set out to say, well, we're just going to reach the Gen Xers, or we're just going to reach this, or whoever they are now, the modern-day thing. You know, it's irrelevant. It's Christ's church. He's going to build the church. He will bring to you whom he sees fit. And so we, we don't want to go down that road. <clears throat> but we also don't want to hide the absolutes of doctrine or ethics, or anything else that might turn people off. That's why if, if you ever go through our membership class, you desire to become a member here at, at Grace Bible Church, the local church, not the universal church. Obviously, if you know Christ, you're part of the body of Christ. You're a member of his body. But a local church has, we believe, members so that we know who to care for who's counted among us, who agrees with us. And part of the questionnaire that we have you fill out is some doctrinal issues. We ask for your testimony. But then we say, is there anything that you disagree with the doctrine of this church or something to that? And it's not a deal breaker. It's just we want to know. Because if it's something real radical, it might not be a good fit. <laughs> and we want to prevent that. Um, and so here he's, he's clearly telling us that, you know what, <clears throat> you have to have this unity. Because if you don't, if you don't agree, if you don't have that attitude of agreement, Philippians chapter 3 talks about that, that we should have the same mind in Christ. And it's not talking, you know, just mindless robots following some leader. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about following Christ and his word. You're not following an individual. You're not following a denomination. You're following Christ. And so he says here that if you don't have this unity, I want to appeal to you on the brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree. And then he even goes further. He says that there be no divisions. That word schemata means to tear or rip apart. That's how it's used in Scripture. It it really means to have a different opinion. You know, we're under no illusion here that we're the only church 
that teaches from the Bible, where we're the only church that teaches truth. We're not under that illusion. There, there's, there's a lot of churches probably in the Bay Area, well, maybe not a lot. There's some churches in the Bay Area that teach the Word of God as truth. And maybe, you know, this church isn't for you. Maybe you find another church that's teaching similar things. That's fine. We're all part of the same body. But within the local church, there shouldn't be a group of believers who are tearing themselves apart, who are all having different doctrinal issues. I've seen churches that do that. They don't put any doctrinal line in the sand at all. So they have a church made up of you know, health, wealth people, charismatic people, reform people, all kinds of things. They got people that believe in baptizing babies that don't believe in baptizing babies. They have people that believe that you can lose your salvation. They have people that believe you don't lose your salvation. I mean, it's a nightmare. There's no unity. And then when you're a teacher in that setting, you have to be so careful because you can't offend anybody. So you can't really teach anything. You basically just teach a bunch of different views and say, well, pick. See, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to build and teach and build up the body of Christ in a way that's honoring to him. So we are going to hold on to certainties. We are going to hold on to absolutes in Scripture. And that's not a a negative thing. That's a positive thing for the body of Christ. I mean, when you stop and think about it, would you... Would you believe that this is God's truth? Okay? If this is God's truth, if the Bible is God's truth, and say I hold a view that conflicts with God's truth, you can't have two truths. (laughs) One of them's got to be wrong. See, and that's why it's so important when we come together, we exposit the Scriptures. We look into the Scriptures. We see what is Paul saying here? Why is he saying it? Because there can't be two conflicting views that are right. That's just the way it is. Now, there's some things that, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, well, the secret things belong to the Lord. There's some things that we're just not going to get on this side of glory. We're not going to totally understand. We don't have all truth all the time. We couldn't handle it if we were able to. But God does not agree, or God does not disagree, excuse me, with himself. And his word does not disagree with itself. And so here, Paul insists that the Corinthians, that all believers, are insistent on having doctrinal unity based upon his word. Based upon his word. And so he wants them to see here that, you know what, these divisions that tear you apart, that cause you to have different opinions, this is not something that's honoring to Christ. As a matter of fact, he even goes further there in verse 10, and he says, but that you be united. United. That word, united, wonderful word. It it really has the idea of perfectly joined together. Perfectly. I mean, do you understand that the body of Christ is perfectly joined together by Christ? It's not up to us to grow the church. It's not up to us to, to you know, make all this happen. It's up to Christ. It's up to God. We just provide the building, provide the platform, hopefully provide a conduit that he can work through as believers. That word, united there, 
In the, in the original language, in the Greek, it means, it speaks of the mending of nets or the mending of even bones. I was watching a football game yesterday, and one of the receivers got hit after he caught the pass, and his, his ankle just, like his foot was going the wrong way. It was, oh, they wouldn't even show the replay. I had it recorded, though, so I watched it a couple times. <laughs> but slow motion, oh, man, it was gross. But I thought about this. This guy's going to need some mending. You know, he's not going to go to the locker room and cop out, come out the next quarter and start running around. I mean, his ankle was twisted right around. And that's what it, it means here. It means to, it speaks of dislocated joints that were brought back together. The basic meaning is just that, to put back together, to make something sound again that was broken or separated. And so he says here, well, you need to be reunited. You need to be united. And then he tells us how. He says, in the same mind. It speaks of internally. We need, we need to understand who we are in Christ because we all have individual minds, we all have individual uh, desires and all those things. That's what Paul's talking about here. But he says when it comes to the body of Christ, all that needs to be set aside. And we need to understand who we are in Christ. And then externally, we need to apply the same judgment. First, Corinth, or First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Paul says this. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. See, the, Paul wants us to understand that, you know what, there is structure to the church. I mean, we're not going to be infallible leaders. We're not going to be perfect leaders by any means. But I pray that as leaders within the local church, we desire to do the right thing before God. That we desire to lead you and shepherd you in a way that's honoring to Christ. And that's why Hebrews says that as people within the body, it says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep out watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. See, when the body of Christ is caught up in division Nobody wants to lead a congregation like that. That's why I started off saying, thank God we're, I'm preaching this not out of necessity. You know, I'm, not, I'm kind of preaching to the choir, to be honest with you. But at the same time, it's something that we need to be aware of. We need to watch out for. God's people are to follow. We're not called to quibble or to question. And it's not blind allegiance. We're not speaking of that. Because as leaders, we want to follow God's word. We want to follow Christ. And so he says the same mind, the same judgment. It really has the idea that it's a unity that's genuine. It's not coming here, putting on a pasty little smile, saying, oh, wonderful message, pastor. And then, you know, oh, man, I don't know what the heck he was talking about. That was so boring. That's hypocritical. I'd rather you tell me to my face than do something like that to the body of Christ. Because then you could grow, you could learn, you could make your messages better if that's the case. 
See, unity is not of the same mind that is not of the same mind and of the same judgment is not true unity. And every church has hypocrites in it. That's just the way it is. But we need to be reminded that that's not what we're called to do. That's not what we're called to be. And we're reunited in the body of Christ. And so what's the purpose of this? Why does Paul bring this up? Why is he making this such a big deal? Well, the purpose of unity in the church is basic. First of all, it tells us in Romans 15, verses 5 to 7, he says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice, what? Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity within the church is important because it brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. Secondly, it brings blessings to the congregation. Nobody wants to be part of a haggling, argumentative, divisive body. Whether it's a business, whether it's a church, to be very, very blunt, nobody enjoys that. Um, that's not something that is enjoyable to be around when everybody's fighting constantly. That's why sometimes people have issues with the holidays, you know, the relatives come over and what do they do? They sit around the table and argue about politics. It's just a miserable experience. It's like we can't help ourselves sometimes. Well, that's not, that's not fun. Well, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 says this. Verse 1 says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and what he's saying is that he's not questioning that. He's saying, obviously, there is all these things in Christ. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is not something you have to conjure up. This is something we already possess in Christ as saints of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly there, it brings joy to the leadership. We just read that verse, that we can lead joyously. Well, how does this happen? The source of this unity is not something that we create. It's something that's already established for us in the power of the Spirit. And the source of the unity is Christ himself. It's Christ's church. It's not ours. And Christ has already provided this unity. This unity, we're called to preserve it, but we're also able to destroy it, if we so choose. But we are not able to create it. It's a unity that is created by God and God alone. He alone is the source of this unity. And that's why Paul says, don't do things from selfish ambition. Don't, don't act that way. Why? Because it's not, it's not living up to the unity that you've already been given in Christ Jesus. And so as we come to our communion table today, I want to read for us over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
because he brings up the same thing again. He says in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. But when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, listen to what he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. In other words, there's going to be some divisions. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you be recognized. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's table that you eat. It it is not the Lord's table that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another one gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? Look at that, the church of God. You're despising the church of God if you're bringing divisiveness within the church. And humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. As a result of that, he says in verse 28, let a person first examine himself, then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak, ill, some even have died. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The Bible says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That's why God cannot condemn the church, but he can discipline the church. So he gives his last instructions here, and he says, So then, brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. There's a lot more I've got to talk to you, but I'll clear those up when I come to you in person, Paul says. This communion table is a table that represents the foundation of our faith. It represents all that Christ did for us on the cross. Um, We have the bread. We have the juice. This isn't literally the body of Christ. It doesn't become the flesh, the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't teach that here. That's not what the Bible teaches these are symbols. These are symbols of his work on the cross. And so when we come to this time, we are to examine ourselves. We're to look within our own heart to see, make sure that we're, we're living for the Lord, that we don't have any unconfessed sin, that we don't have any known sin in our lives, um, that we don't have a grudge against somebody or an issue with somebody. If we do, we, we should address it. Um, but to come to this table means that we are remembering what Christ has done, but we're also fulfilling a command that he gave us to, to do this until he returns. And so this is something that we will do until the Lord Jesus Christ returns and takes us home to be with him.
And so I pray that this time of communion is, is a, a blessing to you. This, this is not just for members of our church. This is an open communion table. It's open to all those who know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so as the elements are passed around in a few moments, um, while we're singing a song, we can, uh, you can take the piece of bread, just hold it, and then once everybody's served, we will partake together after a word of prayer. Uh, let me close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for our message this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us that you have provided the unity that the church needs. It's already there. It's not something we create. But, Lord, it's something that we should fulfill to live up to. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit will lead us and guide us in our daily practice, in our daily lives, within our families, within our marriages, within our relationships, within the church, that they'd be honoring to you, that we would look out for the other person more than ourselves that we'd set aside our own desires and really focus on the desires that you would have us to have. What is your will? What is your desire for us, Lord? And we pray, Lord, as we, we consider that, Father, your word says clearly that more than anything, you desire us to know you in a personal way. You desire us to have our sins forgiven. You desire us to be part of the unity of the body of Christ. And Lord, you've done everything possible to make that happen. You've, you've sent your son. He lived a perfect life for 30-some years. He went to a cross. He died a cruel death. He took upon himself all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith or trust in him for salvation. And he bore that sin on himself even though he had never committed even one sin. He was perfect. He was the perfect sacrifice. And yet you had to treat him as though he had committed all those sins himself. And then he was buried, and the word of God says that on the third day he rose again. That's a message of hope. That's a message of forgiveness. And when we put our faith, our trust in the work of Christ on Calvary, and we come to him and we ask him to save us, that we desire to repent from our sins, grant us repentance, Lord, we pray, that we would know what it means to be part of this precious body of Christ. I pray that you would do that work even now in the hearts that are represented here. And for as believers, I pray that we would... Take this time seriously, that you would lead us and guide us through this time, that we would be able to focus on all that you went through on our behalf and the sacrifice that you made. And Lord, we just thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.